Okay, good morning. We're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 19 today, Genesis 19, so if you've got a Bible and can turn there, that would be great. Um, We're in this series, Origins, looking at stories of hope from Genesis, and the story so far is easily summarized, but it's getting longer each week. God has created the world, he's put people in it, people are great, but people have done bad things, and as a result, sin and death have come into the world, but God has promise that he's going to send what we're calling a seed or a a descendant of the woman, an offspring of the woman who's going to come and crush the snake and destroy sin and death. And we're now waiting to find out who it is. And we've been following that promise through the generations a bit. And so we've seen that it's gone through from Eve to Seth. And then we found out it comes through Noah and then through Shem and then Abraham or Abraham. And we've got that far. That's where we were last week. And we don't know where it goes from there. We do know where it goes from there, but we haven't found it out in Genesis yet. Um, But one of the fascinating things about Genesis as a book is that it doesn't just follow like the main line of the promise. That's a lot of the focus, but it also includes a lot of stories of marginal people who are not in that sort of main line, the central road of promise. But we hear about them anyway, not because they're the means of blessing to the world, but because they're some of the people who are going to get blessed and brought into God's people or somehow receive blessing because of God's people. And I find that very encouraging because I am not uh, in the center, center of God's purposes by nature. I'm not a Jewish person, and most of us probably aren't. I'm not a central hero of faith. Like last week, if you were here, Ozzy introduced Abraham as one of the heroes of faith. Well, actually, I'm not a hero of faith. I don't know how to relate to one. I've never been one. I find that very difficult to know how to do. Because I feel like God only saved heroically faithful people. What hope have I got? I need God to save marginal people on the edge who are a bit of a mess and God to bring them in. And so I find stories like this week really encouraging. Because if all of Genesis was about God saving these heroes of mighty faith and strength and perseverance, I would struggle to believe he could save me. But when I read about other people, instead of thinking, Abraham, yeah, Four billion people trace their roots back to him in the world today. I find myself thinking, I'm not him. No one knows who I am. I'm I'm not a famous person. Neither are you. Most of us are unheard of, largely irrelevant people in the grand scheme of things. I'm I'm sure you're glad you came to hear that kind of nice encouraging word from the pastor. But but it's true, isn't it? Most of us are not world-changing, completely dramatically influential people. Most of us are marginal. And so when I read Genesis, I find myself thinking, God saves people like Lot wow, that's good. He doesn't just save people like Abraham. What a relief. Lot is, um, if you've heard of him at all, I mean, most, a lot of people haven't heard of him. You travel around Lewisham, have you heard of Lot? Most people say no. If you have heard of him, you've heard of him for one of three reasons. You've heard of him because he lived in Sodom, which is not a good start, uh, what we know, the reputation of the city, or because he had drunken sex with his daughters, which is not another good thing to be known for, or because his wife looked back at the destruction of Sodom and was spontaneously turned into a condiment. And those are one of the three reasons. If you've heard of Lot at all, it's probably for one of those three things. So he's notorious. He's not a hero at all. So when we read a story like the one in Genesis 19, and we think, God saves people like that. God saves indisciplined, greedy, cowardly ditherers We find myself going, oh, that's just like me. Thank God for mercy, eh? It doesn't just save the faith-filled ones, the the heroes. He saves people like Lot. So we're going to read Genesis 19. And just what's happened immediately before this story starts 
is that God has said to Abraham, who's up on the hillside, that he's going to destroy the city of Sodom, which is in the valley. And Abraham has started praying and saying, please, God, if you, if you could find 50 righteous people there, would you save the city? And God said, yeah, I would. And then Abraham haggles him. He haggles him down. He says, what about 45? Hey, 40. And he advanced on 30. Can I get you down to 10? Can't say fairer than 10. And eventually he gets God down to 10. So God says, okay, if you can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy it. And as this story begins, we don't know whether there are 10 righteous people there or not. So we don't know what the fate of the city is going to be. And God has sent two angels to bring about the judgment and to see what the city's like. Genesis 19 and verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So in some ways, this is just a standard introductory paragraph, okay? Angels drop in, as they do, and you say, come in for dinner, and the angels come in for a meal. It's it's like an introduction to the story. But there is a couple of things already that might be ringing some bells for some of us if we know the rest of the biblical story and it's worth recognizing those bells um, because they're actually going to point to some connections between this story and another story. Angels have been sent by God to bring judgment to a city. They're visiting at night time. They go inside a house and there is a meal or a feast of unleavened bread being eaten in the house. Right? So there's a number of connected. This is like a Passover story. If you know the story of the Passover, it might ring some bells. You think, oh, that's just what happens the night when God breaks Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Right? The angels come to bring judgment at night. People go indoors and eat a feast of unleavened bread. And so probably it's just, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or just know the Exodus story, there's ringing some bells. And that might help us go, oh, this may be a story then in which God is going to bring rescue to some people out of a situation of judgment to the others. So that just sets us up a little bit for what's going to come next. But it's basically an introduction. Verse 4, but before they lay down, so they're about to go to bed, these angels around Lot's house and him, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, this is where the story becomes a little bit X-rated because knowing somebody, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Bring them out. We'd like to get to know them. Hey, great to meet you. How are you doing? Welcome to our city. That's not what it means. Okay, to know people in the biblical sense, Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant, right? He didn't go up and say, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Adam. And then she's like, oh, goodness, where did this come from? That's not what it means. So knowing people is a, is a euphemism, right? We have to sleep with or to lie with or whatever. In their context, they would say to know is to have sex with. So this is a story about the men of the city wanting to gang rape these two visitors. That's what the story is about. That's, they are wanting to rape these men. Bring them out. We want to know them. Okay? It's a vile story. It's a horrible. It's meant to make us go, ugh. And it is a disgusting story, and it gets worse, because Lot does not respond like you might hope that somebody related to Abraham would respond. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, this is ironic, 
Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. So they, the men of the city come and say, we want to gang rape these two men. And Lot says, oh, no, 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 don't do that. They're my guests. Have my daughters. I mean, what kind of father would do that? This is a diabolical story, and we're meant to be repulsed by it as a way of showing us how degraded this city is. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. In other words, they're threatening probably to rape him as well. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break the door down. But the men, that's the angels in the house, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, and they were worn out with blind, worn, sorry, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So this is meant to be a vile story, right? It reflects a city that has completely unraveled morally. This kind of thing doesn't often happen in human societies but when it does it's because the wheels have completely come off and the whole city or whole community is in a complete pit of moral you know sort of cesspit isn't it and it does sometimes happen it's a horrible story but adults in those all of us who are adults in the room have probably lived through a period of something like this happening somewhere in the world it happened in the the former Yugoslavia in the in the 90s it happened in Rwanda it's happened a bit in our lifetimes occasionally civilizations unravel to such a degree that this kind of thing can happen happens sometimes in things a bit like this happen in prison riots sometimes you know it's places where the the all bets are off and all law and order is gone this kind of thing can take place and it is a horrendous story and just to say sometimes people reading the bible will think can you believe the horrible things that god has included in this book it doesn't that show that god is a moral monster of course the whole point of these stories is to say you're supposed to find them disgusting and supposed to recognize that this is horrible evil it's certainly not for a moment saying copy these guys the whole point of the story is these people are being destroyed because of what's going to happen what they've just done when you watch a movie about the Holocaust, it doesn't usually end at the, with, you know, with the, the words across the screen saying, by the way, killing Jews is a bad idea. Because the story does that for you. Right? That's how stories work. In the Bible, it's the same. You read a story like this, and you're supposed to go, ah, how on earth did human beings ever do that? So it's not commending the behavior at all. But notice, Lot doesn't come off as a good guy either. The Bible's not naive about good and evil. You read a lot of ancient epics, and you have villains, and you have heroes, like the Greek gods or the Greek godmen, Achilles, people like that, sort of walk in, hi, I will come and save the day. But that's not the way the Bible works. The central characters or the people of God, even, in Scripture are very, very flawed people, with one glorious exception, right? They are. They're very broken people. And they do things that are just as bad as the city. We'll come back to that point later. Yet the angels are not going quietly. So they drag Lot inside, strike the men of Sodom with blindness, and protect him and close the door. Which again, there's a bit of a Passover thing here. Angels come and bring a plague, if you like, on all of the people around the evil city, and they rescue people by bringing them inside behind a door, which is very like the Passover story. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were going to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now we've probably guessed by now, but the answer to the question, did God find ten righteous people, is no. He didn't. He didn't find any by the looks of things. God could not find ten righteous people and the city is about to be destroyed. And the angels confirm it here. But they want to rescue people anyway. They want to rescue people urgently, so they say, have you got anybody else? Bring them out. We're going to go. You've got to go now because the city's about to be destroyed. So what you have in these angels, if you like, is an interesting, the same tension that you in some ways find throughout Scripture with reference to the character of God. God is going to judge wickedness. I hate gang rape. I hate oppression. I hate crushing the poor. I hate these things. I want to destroy them. And yet I love mercy and I want to rescue people. And so you find that these angels represent who God is to us. That God comes and says, evil is not okay. I'm going to wipe it out, but I want to save people as well. And so the angels are saying, we are coming as agents of judgment, but also as angels of mercy. Now find anyone you can. Anybody else you're related to, Lot. If we're in your house, is there anyone we could somehow grab into this little escape we're going to do to get them out? Anybody else? But his sons-in-law think he's joking. And sometimes that happens to us. We hear warnings and we think it's a joke. I've had that in a stupid scenario with um, that game where you push your cousin around in a trolley in a supermarket car park. I'm not saying we should play that game. I'm in fact saying you shouldn't play that game. But I did when I was a teenager. Cousins in the thing, sharing around. It's dark. I'm looking around. There is nothing to see. It's all fine. And he shouts at me as we're going at high speed, be careful. And I look out and say, there is nothing to see. No danger anywhere. Of what? I shout at him. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a wall about this high just pops up out of thin air, crashes straight into it. That! He shouts at me. And I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. Warnings sometimes seem like jokes. And, si- and sometimes they have serious consequences. The Titanic. Yeah? You know, people saying, oh, just slow down. There is icebergs out there. No, no, no. Take her to sea, Mr. Murdoch. Let's stretch our legs. It's, they don't take warnings seriously. And off they go. And 1,500 people die. This is one of those. This is one of those moments where people hear the warning. It's not that they weren't told. It's just they thought it was a joke. And some of us do that as well. Some of us respond to threats or warnings, grave warnings over our lives, and respond as if they're just comedy or as if they're a little bit of a laugh. And that's what these guys do. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Look how realistic that is. That's exactly what we do when faced with warnings about coming judgment and the offer of rescue. I mean, I'm speaking for myself here, but I imagine for many others as well. We are threatened with destruction and offered a chance of free rescue, and we linger. We wait, we dither, we go, hmm, okay, so right, so you're saying, I could, I could be saved if I do this, and judgment's coming if I don't. Okay, but what if, hmm, I wonder, I like this, and I want to, ca- can I take her with me? Can I take this? Can I carry that as well? I've got all this stuff with me. I don't want to give this up. Can I come and be part of the kingdom of God if I've still got all this stuff? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, oh that's a difficult deal then. I better think about that. Oh, maybe I'll put that. What about if I took this? And we linger, and we dither. We know that the world around us is under judgment. We know that we are. We know that God wants to save us, but we linger anyway. Is it, oh, is it worth it? I wonder, is it, could I, can I keep... Is it, 
There's a guy in my, the church I was in in Eastbourne who went on the Alpha course, which is an introduction to Christianity course we do. He went on it five times. It was, he came along, oh, Jesus, alive, risen, so forgive you, give you new life. Oh, sounds good. Now, I'd like to be able to do this as well, though, and that doesn't seem to be what you... Hmm, okay, I'll come on Alpha a second time and see. He did it five times. We linger, we dither, we wait. We, now, there's nothing wrong with weighing up. Right? There's nothing wrong with taking seriously the cost of following Jesus. That's a good thing. But lingering and dithering is where that gets to the point where you think you're at risk of, of not escaping judgment because you're faffing around waiting to see if it all lines up for you. And in my own life, I think that process took me about eight years. That's crazy. Eight years from the moment when I realized Jesus was alive to the moment when I actually started following him, no turning back, no turning back. That took me about eight years. I remember one evening in, um, it was just, I was mired in depths of sin that I don't want to talk about. And I was, you know, probably the thing, maybe the thing I'm most ashamed of having done in my life. And I'm walking back through the streets of the city center and a Christian friend of mine who I knew, who's smiling away, they're doing street evangelism. So sharing Jesus with people on a Friday night. And I'm walking through feeling this sick with guilt for what I've just done. And he sees me, smiles, waves, chats briefly, and I just walk back, and I'm just like feeling rotten on the inside. I, and I still dithered. I was like, I know, I know that Jesus loves me, and he wants to save me, and I know that this life I'm leading is under judgment, and I know that it's not, it's destructive to me, it's destructive to other people, but I'm still, I kind of don't want to, do I have to leave that? And then I, if I follow Jesus, I can't do this and that. And I'm living in that lingering for probably eight years, on and off, in different co- contexts in my life. And some of us know what that's like. That's what we do. The hope in the story doesn't come from what we do. The hope in the story comes from what God then does. Verse 16, so the men seized him. He's, li- he's lingering. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. God comes to us as we dither, as we're faffing around, and he is merciful to us. And he takes us by the hand, and he brings us out, and he sets us outside the city. And you imagine, Lot, this is probably happening in his pajamas, right? He went to bed. We know that. The morning's dawn. The the guys have come in and said, oh, oh, it's a bit of a difficult night with all that sort of attempted gang rape and everything. I'd better go to bed. So they've gone to sleep, and then the angels come and say, get up, get up, we've got to go. And he's like, oh, I'd, oh I'm just going to my alarm clock. No, get out now. And eventually the angels grab hold of them and physically remove them from the city in spite of themselves in their pajamas and say, quite literally, head for the hills. We tend to think that conversion is like a reasonable leisurely debate between us and God, a lunchtime chat. I'm going to go for a coffee with God. I'll talk to him. I've got this. Well, what about that guy? Oh, that's an interesting point, Andrew. Well, the way I see it is you do. And we tend to see conversion that way in our own lives. At God's level, something else is happening. At God's level, sometimes we are saying, I'm dithering. And God is coming 
being merciful to us, taking us by the hand, saying, get out now. I'm not going to allow your lingering, your dithering, your lack of decision at this point to to compromise the mercy I want to show you. I'm going to get you out anyway, even though you're still equivocating. It's more like being seized and dragged out of the city at night than it is like a lunchtime chat over a coffee. And he says, I'm going to set you outside the blast zone and say, run and never look back. That's what the mercy of God does. I look around this room and even some of the people I know here who are journeys to meet Jesus, were, we might have felt at times like they were conversion chatting stories, but actually they were God acting sovereignly on us to pull us out of our own decisions and pull us out of the sort of loop of wondering and not deciding and God eventually acting sovereignly to pull us out to safety. Mercy doesn't wait for us to stop lingering before it rescues us from destruction. Mercy comes when we're still in our sins. Mercy looks like a nighttime escape in your pajamas. Verse 18. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I can't escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on... Zoar means little. That's why he's there. He's called that. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah fire and sulfur from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So Lot and his family are saved, and they flee to a nearby town called Zoar. They say, well, we can't make it to the hills. We'll get caught out. No, 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 all right, fine. You can go to this one, but as soon as you get there, the city's going up in flames. And as they are on their way there, just at the point when we think, what a lovely rescue story, right? The judgment comes, but they've got away. Phew! Lot's wife looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. And that is a strange twist. I don't think many of us were expecting that unless we knew it was happening already. That's not what you think will happen. But it is very interesting that exactly the same thing happens after Israel's national Passover in a few hundred years' time. Angels come at night, judge the city. Israel flees. Run, get out of here. Go, go, go. They go through the Red Sea and then they get to the place where they could now start looking on to press on to their inheritance, and a whole bunch of them look back. And they say, ooh, melons. We used to have melons. You remember, if you know the Exodus story, we used to, they go back, we used to have cucumber. We used to have garlic. Imagine, they nearly gave up the purposes of God for cucumbers. And they made the compromise. They said, well, we want to go back and be drawn. Yeah, but oh, I know we were slaves and everything, but forget that for a moment. Cucumbers. You think, who thinks like that? Lot's wife is, if you like, the first example of that taking place in Scripture. The first time somebody, having been rescued, gets to the point of nearly making it and then looks back. Jesus uses this specific example when he talks about how people who follow him should and should not respond to his coming. He says in Luke chapter 18, he says, remember Lot's wife. It's one of his shortest sentences he ever said. Remember Lot's wife. Don't be the person who nearly makes it 
and then looks back and goes, I don't think, by the way, this is just a little quick glance to check that she hadn't dropped anything. I think this is, she looks back with longing and pining for the old. That's what Israel do, that's what she does, and that's what Jesus says, you must not do. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, for this reason. Don't be the person who almost makes it and then looks back. Verse 27, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of that land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So we've forgotten Abraham, but Abraham's up on the mountainside. He's on the hillside looking down at the valley, which is where Sodom is. And Sodom is being destroyed, and Abraham is looking down at it up on the hillside. And the Bible is very clear from beginning to end that in the end, all evil faces judgment. It's not something a lot of modern people like. Certainly in our world, it probably isn't. But this is something the Bible is crystal clear on from beginning to end, that wickedness faces judgment, that there comes a day at some point, and we don't know when, when God says, I am drawing a line. I hate gang rape. I hate the oppression of the poor. I hate greed. I hate pride. I hate these things. And I am now, once and for all, going to wipe them out. And Sodom serves as a picture of that act of destruction which God brings on human wickedness. And he's going to pour down, in this sense, fire and sulfur, and the smoke of the destruction goes up forever, almost as this permanent memorial to the fact that wickedness will ultimately face judgment. Why? Because if you want to have a world which is free of nothing but joy and righteousness and is free from sin and evil, you've got to get all of the evil and wickedness out of it and destroy it permanently. And that is what God will do. The day of judgment to come is actually a day of celebration and joy because it means the world has been cleansed of all of this stuff and things like happened last night will never ever happen again. But the only way that that happens is for God to bring judgment and resolve everything once and for all. And Sodom serves as a picture of that for the rest of Scripture. And whenever you read in the Bible that phrase, the smoke of her destruction goes up forever, it's a reference back to this story where the smoke is rising like a furnace. So it's a, it's a sobering passage, as well as a beautiful one. It's sobering because it says, actually, Sodom gets destroyed, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. But it's a beautiful one because it says, but Lot, in spite of being the ditherer in the middle, gets rescued, and so do I. The question that might bother us as we close is, so why did Lot get rescued at all? Why? Right? So the rest of the city is into all of this stuff, but he doesn't seem any better, does he? He's given up his daughters. He doesn't seem like a good guy. You read the story of Lot, and you think, no, he doesn't seem any better than any of the other guys. Why did God save him? And everybody else was destroyed. He should have been destroyed too. If you're anything like me, you ask that question of yourself sometimes. I often do. Why did God save me? Right? I'm, I refer back to that night I was talking about 20 years ago. I think I am certainly no better, probably a good slight worse than a lot of people who I was living among at the time. And yet God still showed me mercy. Why did he do that? Why did God show mercy to me when I'm no better than any of these other people? And you could ask that question of Lot, and we should ask that question of ourselves, because I am Lot in that sense. I'm just like that. Why did God rescue me, and why did God rescue Lot? And the answer that Genesis gives almost couldn't be more surprising, but it's in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
The writer of Genesis says the reason why God saved Lot is because God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. Right? Lot is not a perfect man at all. Lot can't trust in his own righteousness at all. Right? The picture we get from Genesis, although there's other scriptures to bear on this as well, but the picture of Genesis is he's foolish, he's greedy, he's cowardly, he's indecisive, he's indisciplined. But verse 29 says, but Lot didn't get saved because of Lot. Lot was rescued not because God remembered Lot, but because God remembered Abraham. Because Lot, you see, had a faithful kinsman who we had kind of forgotten about, who's up there on the hillside praying. And that faithful kinsman's name was Abraham, and he was a man who was a believer in God, and his faith was credited to him, as we saw last week, as righteousness. And so his righteousness and his faith and his prayers availed before God, and he was calling out to God, saying, the judge of all the earth, you've got to do what's right. Please show mercy on my kinsman who's down here in the pit of sin. And if it hadn't been for Abraham, Lot would have gone up in smoke with the rest of them. But Lot had a covenant-keeping friend on the hillside watching over him and praying for him that the judge of the earth would be merciful to him. And so do I. I have a covenant-keeping friend as well who's up on the hillside, and he is praying for me and is interceding for me, and his faith has been credited to him as righteousness. And God looks at him and listens to his prayers, and I'm down here in the pit of sin. But my friend, my relative, my kinsman is on the hillside crying out to God and watching over me, asking that God the Father would show mercy to him. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot and God remembers Jesus and he rescues me and he rescues you and it's on the basis of your friend who's praying not on the basis of your righteousness being superior to anyone else's that God drags you out of the city in your pajamas and takes you to safety. That's the way the gospel works, friends. Paul said this. Paul said, who who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the basis for your hope today. Not your righteousness. Not the fact that you're better than the, oh, they gang rape, oh, I'd never do that. The basis for your hope is that your covenant-keeping friend has prayed for you and is extending mercy towards you. And the Father hears him remembers him and rescues you amen Amen. father we thank you so much for this marvelous gospel that just pops up in the most unlikely places and we thank you for your rescue of us your rescue of me your rescue of my brothers and sisters here that is based not on our moral quality but on the work the sacrifice the intercession of jesus that he has the basis on which we're rescued and not ourselves lord i pray that you would help us be those who live lives between now and the day when we do inherit our inheritance, that you'd help us be those who don't look back. You'd help us be those who press on, who don't do a lot's wife, but inherit the future you've got for us. We don't look back wistfully to the melons and cucumbers and get turned into a pillar of salt, but we would be those who press on. But Lord, in that tension while we wait, we trust that your prayers and your help and your strength will help us get there. So we need not fear because we know that you have prayed for us that our strength won't fail and that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. We are so thankful for Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.